Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, and we're trying to make this podcast interactive, so if you've got any questions as we look at the world of Jesus together, you can send those to me at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, and I'll write you back and even try to incorporate questions in future episodes. For now, I want to remind you that for the past 10 or so chapters of this podcast, we've been looking at the world of Jesus and looking at his friends, uh, looking at how Hebrew people uh, would live or what they ate or where they worshipped, uh, what they did, uh, Jesus' teachings to them. Today, I want to take a step back and look at the neighbors. I want to look at the neighbors and look at the Gentile people living around uh, Jesus and his friends in the world of Jesus. And I'm going to start with a picture of a Gentile city called Hippos. Uh, Hippos has a couple of important roles in Scripture, even in the world of Jesus. I'll show you how this works. But first, I'll show you where Hippos is located. This city is located on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee here, and it's on a ridge overlooking the lake. Now, let me remind you what we know about the Sea of Galilee geographically. It's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. It's about seven miles wide. It's about 11 miles long. You can always see to the other side. But all the way around it are are mountains, or or it would be mountains, so that the Sermon on the Mount is really just the Sermon on the Bank of the Lake. And the same is true with Hippos. Uh, Hippos was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, which is mentioned in Scripture, which were just ten city-states, if you will, that were older than the Roman Empire, uh, but were dependent upon Rome. And they had a shared culture and a shared language and a shared way of governing, which was a Greco-Roman worldview. Uh, And they they sat there, uh, this particular city sat there uh, in a place where, where folks living in the world of Jesus could see them. Now, Jesus and his friends, their ministry happened on the northwest corner of the lake, where I've got a little blue drawn right here, and so they could always see across to the other side. For this reason, uh, Hippos plays a a kind of a unique role in the story. I've got a little rock from uh, from the dig, from Hippos, and it's a a little gray rock, like all the rock around there, a little volcanic rock, uh, but it's covered with white plaster. A Greco-Roman city would gleam white. That's the way they built there. They had more money there. Uh, Capernaum literally looks like a pile of rocks. Hippos, you can sort of see something that was more grand. It's all toppled, and and it was abandoned after an earthquake in the year 749. So that's why the columns are toppled in the picture that that I'm showing to you. Uh, But the city gleamed white on top of the hill. Now, think about where the sun would shine. If we're looking at the Sea of Galilee on my little map here from from north to south, and then Hippos is in the east, and Tiberias would be in the west, and the sun would come over. When Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount from the northwest corner on the bank, he said in his Sermon on the Mount, a city on a hill can't be hid. The afternoon sun would gleam upon the white stones of Hippos. So so Hippos is in the story. It's also in the story in Luke chapter 8. Below Hippos, there are tombs where Jesus healed a man uh, who had a legion of demons in his head, which meant that he had a thousand demons or more uh, inside of his mind. Poor tortured man. He's inside of these tombs and he's, he's, tearing, he's tearing at his hair and, and breaking shackles and generally terrifying the populace. And you remember the miracle. Jesus cast the uh, demons out of his mind into a herd of swine. 
which again would only happen on the Gentile side of the lake. I'll say some more about that in a second. And so the man begs to be, um, the man begs to be a disciple. Now, everybody on this side of the lake wants Jesus gone. Everybody on the northwest shore of the lake, uh, they think Jesus is a rock star. He can't go anywhere without crowds hounding him for a miracle. But on the eastern shore of the lake, uh, they want him, they want him out of there. And so this man has to go with him. And he says, go back and tell your neighbors and your friends what God has done for you. Go back and tell your neighbors and your friends uh, that I've healed you and right, and that I'm real and, and how much God's mercies uh, have, have happened in your life. And he does. And so my, like my friend Don likes to call him, this Gentile, uh, unnamed Gentile from Hippos becomes the first missionary. And so somewhere very near the picture that I showed you in this courtyard, he went back and he told his friends what God had done for him, a Gentile. The word Gentile means nations, and it doesn't really refer to a person so much or what a person might be, but rather what a person is not. A Gentile means that you're not Jewish. That's simply what Gentile means. It's to differentiate you from someone who lived a Jewish life. Now, it'll help to recap what we've learned from past episodes so that you can understand what makes a Jewish person different than a Gentile person. It works like this. If you want to go back to the very beginning of this podcast, you know, back to last summer, if you will, uh, we looked at the book of Genesis, and Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are a poetic rendering of human beings' fall from an idyllic existence in the poem would be called a garden, what we could also call would be uh, uh, something more like a hunter-gatherer society where God provides food and you travel and you follow the weather and it's egalitarian and everyone shares. Uh, it's, it's a devolving from that idyllic existence to a mechanized city. We might tend to think of a city as an upgrade because of technology, but rather with a city, somebody's got to be on top and somebody's got to be on bottom. With a city, there's got to be stratification and a ladder. With the city, there's got to be an army to protect the wheat now and, and, and another army to, go, to attack someone else's wheat. With the city, there are going to be slaves and they're going to be a king and there's only one king and there are a lot of slaves and so on and so on and so on. So with the city, there's a cycle of misery that continues and the Bible's really honest about it. So that in Genesis chapter 12, which is really the beginning of the big story, which I like to call the story of all of us, God calls a man named Abraham away from a city so that he could be different. And that is a recurring theme in Scripture again and again and again. Will you be different or will you be something else? Will you be like the city or will you be mine, which is a family apart. And then we keep reading the Hebrew scriptures and we see the adventures of this family. In time, they find themselves enslaved in a city, so God saves them. So their origin story is that they were helpless without the power of God. They're a nation of slaves. Um, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives them laws, uses a new technology, writing to communicate God's own divine mind, God's will for them. Uh, in uh, Leviticus 23, they are commanded to protect the vulnerable and the stranger, which is which is without precedent in their world, right? But begin there to be different of the way that God asked them to be different. And Leviticus chapter 16, had to spit that out, uh, they are, even have access to God's forgiveness. So in time, what happens is the story of the Hebrews sounds a lot like the story of us in that they're given a, a dream and a plan, 
but they fail to do it. And they fail to do it again and again and again, and prophets will remind them, and then they say they're sorry, and they go home, and kings will forget, and then they'll say they're sorry and reform, and, and it's a cycle that continues uh, to this day. Here's my point. Gentiles did not live this ordered life. Gentiles didn't live a life that, uh, that quite frankly, uh, would be would be bounded uh, as 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 the as the Hebrews would be bounded. Gentiles didn't live a life uh, that would that would have these markers, these commands to care for the poor, or these uh, laws, if you will, that reflect God's will for them. So the point is, is that you don't need to rub up against people who don't have the boundaries or the priorities that you do. That's that's really what that means. That's that differentiates a Gentile from a Hebrew. And I've got a great example. Okay, I'm going to show you another picture here, and this is a picture uh, from a hill in the middle of the Jezreel Valley, and it's called Tel Jezreel. Now, this may not look like there's a whole lot to look at right here because it's just grass and rocks, but let me explain the purpose of a tell. A tell is an archaeological an archaeological remnant of what had been a city. And archaeology is the science of layers, and so these are layers upon layers upon layers of, of civilizations or epochs or generations uh, or of a city on top of each other and they get really high or get higher than the than the surrounding hillside because it's an artificial mound of human inhabitation that's all I'm trying to say and so Tel Jezreel is an uncovered tell these things are all over Israel and it really only takes it really just takes money money and time uh, and we could uncover them all but but we haven't gotten to tell Jezreel yet except for a few scratchings and scrapings and these pottery pieces just come up out of the earth and I find it fascinating here because a very important story happened here and it's really fun to sit on the top of Tel Jezreel and to look at the pottery and to think about what what happened underneath the mud beneath your boots so what happened there is a palace uh, inhabited by King Ahab uh, and his queen Jezebel, and a vineyard. Somewhere under our feet, this story happened, and it's found in 1 Kings 21. I'm going to tell the story because it's just fun to tell, but you can read about it. 1 Kings 21, it goes like this. A man named Naboth had a vineyard, and the king named Ahab wanted it. So he offered to buy it from him. Naboth said, the vineyard is my family inheritance. It would bring shame to my family to sell it. So, so he didn't. Uh, it wouldn't. And, and Naboth was, was furious and he pouted. Now, his wife Jezebel was a Gentile. Ahab was a Hebrew, an Israelite king. But Jezebel was a Phoenician queen. And so this, this is a great illustration on the danger of rubbing up against people who don't live the ordered life or the ordered dream that God has for us. She wasn't different in the way that God asked us to be different. Jezebel procures the, um, the vineyard for Ahab by murdering Naboth, which is what any king or queen would do in those days. If you want something, you just go out and take it. And it's very, very, very wrong. Wrong in the eyes of God and the prophet Elijah uh, goes and tells them that this will spell their doom. And that's the point of the story. Even kings are called to live under God's law. Even kings are called to be different in the way that God asks us to be different. So, what you see here in the case of Jezebel is the danger of intermingling, not because it's some sort of 
not not because they're they're different kind of people is that they don't have the ordered life if you will uh, so that so that God wants a, a different kind of humanity regardless regardless of of race or creed or country we're all guided by the same principles which makes us one human family the only thing that gentiles will mean in the hebrew scriptures is that they're not following the plan and God makes it clear in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that if they only follow the plan, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Everybody gets in. Well, I've got a couple of examples in Hebrew scriptures that I want to show you uh, how this works. Even though they may seem rare or few and far between, there are a couple of important stories that have to do with Gentile people uh, accessing the promises of Israel's God. The first picture I want to show you is a picture of Ruth. The book of Ruth is is a lovely little story. We probably all know it from our Sunday school days. Uh, It's a great example of a Gentile uh, participating in this this ongoing story of God's people. It works like this. Ruth, this is about a thousand years before Jesus' birth. Uh, Ruth is from Moab. She's a Gentile person. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, is a Hebrew, and Naomi's husband dies, but also Naomi's two sons die, so that Ruth and her sister-in-law and Naomi are all left without husbands in a foreign land. Naomi wants to return uh, to to find some way of of surviving, if you will, through some family inheritance, and Ruth says she'll go with her. Ruth's sister-in-law does not go back with her, and Naomi even says, there's really no point in you going back. You stay with your people. I'll go to my people, and Ruth says this. I'll read this to you. It's Ruth chapter 2, beginning with the um, 15th and 16th verse, okay? No, it's Ruth 1, 15 and 16. So here we go. Ruth chapter 1, 15 and 16. Here we go. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is Naomi speaking. But Ruth said, here's the important verse, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Okay. Here we go. I did a Google search on this one time. Yep, not a lot of heavy uh, uh, search right here, but I did do a Google search. And how many times does it say in the Bible, I will be their people and they will be my God? And as best I could tell, it says it about 46, all the way from Genesis, all the way to Revelation. I will be their people and they will be my God, which may be the secret to an ordered life. Love of God and then love of the people God loves, which is everybody. Okay, the whole human family, love of God, love of neighbor. Um, in Matthew chapter 22, we see a showdown between Jesus and his opponents. I mean, the, the noose is circling. We're getting to the end of the story. And they want to know if Jesus would name the, the greatest of the commandments, the greatest of God's laws. You know, what had happened is God used this new technology called writing to to communicate the divine mind. Writing, uh, and we talked about it in the last podcast, uh, was originally just math. Writing was intended to record grain and to store things and to inventory things. And so God used this technology now to speak, you know, truth to them, uh, what God wanted for them, God's purpose for them. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, there are over 600 of these laws, which in a way, it kind of feels like math again. So they're trying to get Jesus to, to pin him down, to pick which is the greatest of all these. And Jesus said, actually, there are two. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, verses 34 through 40. 
When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love of God, love of neighbor. How about this? I will be your people, and you will be my God. Um, I've got a good analogy for this to get your mind around how how faith works and how this can make us one human family in this ordered kind of way. Uh, I have an album. I'll show you an album from my own little turntable here in the office. I'm a jazz guy, so I like to do a lot of work with jazz in the background. And any jazz fan has got to have the album Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. It's probably the most popular jazz album. I mean, it's, I think it's it is the most popular jazz album of all time. People talk about it. It's the gold standard, but there's a story behind it that's remarkable. In 1959, Miles Davis called together a group of, of musicians, a super group, really, people like uh, Jimmy Cobb on drums and John Coltrane on sax and Wynton Kelly and, and Bill Evans even. He called them together, studio musicians, to play music that they'd never seen before. In fact, Miles Davis had only sketched out the pieces about four hours before, and they were based on the, the jazz principle of improvisation. Now, jazz works really works two ways. One, you've got to have beat, 4-4 four, four time, and then you've got to have key, like B-flat. And then other than that, once you have the, the structure, if you will, you can play a song. So that kind of blue is, in, in essence, one big album of, of improvisation. They played it in one take. These are songs that they'd never played before. And what's really cool to think about it is, to this day, bands will cover... Kind of Blue, or songs from Kind of Blue, uh, which which means they're simply covering something that was made up on the fly. Uh, all they had were, were, were two parameters, two boundaries, uh, beat and key, and everything else, as drummer Jimmy Cobb said, must have come from heaven. Faith is like jazz. Love God, love your neighbor. Other than that, pick up your horn and play. Find out your way, and this is how the whole human family can become uh, live an ordered life the way that God asks us to, can become different in the way that God asks us to be different. Okay, in the case of little Ruth, Ruth was so kind, so she follows Naomi to Bethlehem, and her kindness uh, to her mother-in-law attracts the attention of Boaz. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Boaz is a wealthy relative of Naomi's. He ends up marrying Ruth, and they all live happily ever after, and the story goes like this. Ruth would become the great-grandmother of the mighty King David. So he would have Gentile blood coursing through his veins. She would be one of the five women in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Uh, and faithful Hebrews will note uh, that Ruth, being from Moab, also would reverse or at least transcend a curse that was put upon the Moabites in Deuteronomy chapter 23 because they must have been really bad to the Hebrews when they were wandering in the desert. But you see, even a Moabite uh, can access the promises of Israel's God. You just got to do it. All right, that's one example. Here's another one, another good one. Uh, this one is uh, a man named Naaman who was a soldier. He was actually, it's found in 2 Kings. I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, it's pretty cool. 2 Kings chapter 5. There was a neighboring uh, nation about 800 years before Jesus' birth called Aram. It's where Syria is located now. Its capital was Damascus. This was a mighty general uh, who was very 
uh, was very successful in battle. One of his one of his raids actually brought home an Israelite slave who would uh, attend to his family. And Naaman was pretty much at the top of his game, except he had leprosy. So he had the guy had a problem, and uh, the Israelite. Israelite slaves said, look, there's a prophet in Israel that can, can cure you of this. Now, now I need you to understand that Ruth thought this way at first and Naaman thought this way at first. They had a tribal idea of gods. You would have a Moabite god, you would have an, an Aramean god, and then you had the Israelite god. And so, gosh, the thought was, if the Israelite god can heal me of, of leprosy, I'm, I'm in. So Naaman uh, does what any powerful general would do because he's in that rarefied air of leaders. He sends um, some silver and some gold and some nice clothes to the king of Israel and says, I'd like to have an invitation. To, I'd, I'd like for you to hook me up, if you will, with Elisha so that he can, so that he can heal me of this of this leprosy and and sort of the king of Israel just has an absolute come apart because because um he thinks it's like a Rumpelstiltskin thing. He thinks that Aram is is going to get him Rumpelstiltskin remember how am I going to make gold coins out of straw? How am I going to heal this this Naaman guy, this general of his leprosy and when I can't do it he's going to make war on me. But Elisha says, "I got it." So I'm just kind of paraphrasing what happens in 1 Kings, I mean 2 Kings rather chapter 5. And Elisha says, I got this. And so so Naaman goes with his retinue, what I can only imagine was quite a sight to see with, with all the soldiery and chariots and stuff like that. And and Elisha sends a, a servant out to meet Naaman. A ser- now, catch this now. Elisha doesn't even go outside to meet him. He sends a servant. And the servant says, look, prophet says, you just go wash in the Jordan River seven times and your leprosy will be gone. And Naaman is furious. He can't believe this. First of all, prophet doesn't even come outside, and he's an important dude. Uh, so why why did why did you send a, a servant? Secondly, Jordan River, there's not much. There's just not much to it. My pally Don and I, when we're kind of palling around the Galilee, we're always snickering at this whitewater adventure on the Jordan River, which is basically like a lazy river at a water park here. I mean, just this meandering little thing that's tinier than the little Cahaba and people sitting on inner tubes, not much of a whitewater adventure. And and anybody from Aram also thought that the Jordan wasn't much of a river, except the servant says, you know what? If the mighty prophet had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. Why don't you just go why don't you just go wash and see? And so this is what we learn in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. Let's see if I can find it right here. It's 2 Kings chapter 5, 15. He washes in the river, clean as the day he was born, leprosy gone. That he returned to the man of God and of all his company. And he came and stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. Now, these two stories are important for Gentiles because in the case of both Ruth and Naaman, one, they become part of the human family ordered by, by God's dream for us, which is, which is a life that's different uh, than the world around us. That's the first thing. Second thing, you see both in Ruth and Naaman a moving from a tribal God to an understanding that the God of the Hebrews is the Lord of all, the God of all. It's a moving from from monolatry, which is my God is can beat up your God, to monotheism, which there is only one God and the other gods aren't real. In other words, two Gentiles become people of faith, which brings us now to the world of Jesus and stories of faith. Now, I'm going to tell you from time to time that the four Gospels all have their own unique perspective. They're not 
newspaper reporting when it comes to telling the stories of Jesus, but rather the Gospels have their own um, lens through which they see the story. They have their own memories. They have their own perspective. And one perspective that Matthew talks about is the perspective of faith. It's the, it's the presence of faith that means um, tenacity. A tenacious faith is very important in Matthew's gospel uh, in order for people to experience healing. I'll give you some examples of a tenacious faith. So this is something that's recorded again and again and again. Uh, first of all, we see friends lower their paralyzed friend through a hole in the roof to get to Jesus. He's got crowds all around him. There's no way they can get their paralyzed friend. And so they lower him through the hole in the roof. And when Jesus saw the friend's faith, he says, man, stand up, take your mat and walk, be healed. But the phrase is when he saw their faith, tenacious faith, the kind of faith that digs a hole in the roof. A hemorrhaging woman, all this happens in Matthew chapter 9, all three of these stories. Hemorrhaging woman crawls because because she hemorrhages blood, she's rendered unclean. She crawls across between the feet of people all crowded around Jesus just to touch the hem of his robe. And he says, woman, your faith is has saved you. Blind men, it can't be easy for a blind guy to follow Jesus this way into the unknown, but they follow him tenaciously and he turns around and they are healed by their faith. So faith is real important in Matthew's gospel. Faith is also real important because it represents a a tenacity or a dogged determination to be healed by God and to be God's people. It's a participatory thing, not just I think I believe thing, but rather a, a refusal to let it go kind of thing. And two stories not only demonstrate faith, they're the only two that do this, but they demonstrate great faith. Okay, the two, the two stories, I have all these faith stories that actually represent something better and they happen to be Gentiles. And they also happen to be the story of a soldier and a woman, just like the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, there's something else I like to talk about when I, when I teach the Gospels, and that is the principle of repetition, which means that stories in the Bible tend to happen over and over and over and over again, which means at least two things. One, it means if God did something once, God will do it again. And that's thinking like a Bible person. That's thinking like a Hebrew. If God did something once, I'm going to write it down because God is going to do it for me. The second thing is that the stories of the Bible are just the stories of us. If these stories happen over and over and over again, then they're our stories. They're the human story. I want to show you a picture of some soldiers' quarters. This is back at the city of Hippos again on the eastern shore of the lake. And what happened there is that retired soldiers, legionnaires or centurions, would live there as a security force. This would be their retirement gig. My friend Don has, I think, a charming idea about what happened to the man in the tombs down in the tombs beneath the city of Hippos. Remember what we know about the story. Jesus um, speaks to this man who is who is completely infested with a thousand demons in his head, and he asks the demons to say their name. They say, my name is Legion. And so for this reason, the man who's the caretaker of the park at the tombs, um, I think he donned and other Galilean people wonder if the man in the tombs was not a burned out, uh, tortured uh, Roman soldier. That's it. Legion. Legion is a name for a group 
of Roman soldiers. And yes, he had a thousand demons in his head left over from a lifetime of warfare and mayhem and living a life that was disordered, not the life that God holds out for us. And so Jesus healed him right there in the spot. It's, it's absolutely a possibility with the proximity of these soldiers' quarters and, and this man. But let's go back to a story because we've got two stories in Matthew's gospel that closely parallel uh, what happened with the soldier in 2 Kings and what happened with Ruth in the book of Ruth. The first story is Matthew chapter 8 and involves a centurion. Now you've heard me talk about the, the quarters in the wall, about centurions and legionnaires. Legionnaires were soldiers. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army in charge of something called a century. Century, I used to think it would be 100 soldiers. I think it was more like 60 to 80 soldiers. But they were elite officers in the military. A centurion had to be able to read, to follow written orders. A centurion had to be physically fit, uh, uh, more than more than the others even, even so, which also suggests that gymnasium in the wall in Hippos there. And they also had to have personal connections so that they could have letters of recommendation. So these guys were sort of at the top of their game like Naaman, the Syrian general. So what I'm going to read to you is Matthew chapter 8, beginning with the 5th verse uh, through verse 10. I'll just read it. We'll see if we can see the parallels right away. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to them, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. And when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to him, that, said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, in Israel have I found such faith. Okay, such faith, such faith. Now, not just faith. Now, like the other stories, your faith has healed you. Uh, but no, such faith. Faith, okay, because when he saw their faith, he healed the man. No, no, no. In Israel, I haven't seen such faith. In other words, the uh, the centurion demonstrates something even greater. It's it's great faith. It's the same faith that, that Naaman had to discover uh, when Elisha sent his servant out to see him. He says, Lord, I don't I don't need you to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I know that you're under the authority of God. You can do this. I trust you. I trust that you that you have my back. I trust that you can be for me who I w- want you to be. I trust that you will be my God and I will be yours, you see. And so, he, so Jesus sees great faith in the person of a Gentile soldier. God did it once. God will do it again. Now, the second story is about a woman, and it parallels Ruth, but i got to tell you it's problematic. I'm just going to go ahead and, and say that, and why don't I read it, and then we can talk about it. It's Matthew chapter 15, beginning with the 21st verse. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. It goes like this. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon which is up in Lebanon, and we're out, of, we're out of God's country now. We're out of the world of Jesus into the world of Gentiles. And just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. 
And she said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, I said this story is problematic, and I think you could see right away, but it just doesn't sound like Jesus in the other stories. It's problematic because, one, Jesus never turns anyone away. He he doesn't send anyone back, even in Gentile people. The commentators have all tried to explain this, and I've I've been dissatisfied with just about every excuse I've ever heard. Uh, One commentator would say, well, Jesus' mission was to the Hebrews first, and then they got their shot, and then only after, after Easter would the Gentiles be able to accept salvation and be the human family. I don't think that's right. We've already seen in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, that, that to be God's family is to live that ordered life where, where we have God and each other. And, and that, so that door is always open to us. It's just, not, it's just not closed in that way. And then also... We were told, I've been told, that dogs were a term that Hebrews would use for Gentiles because a dog would eat anything. Well, that doesn't really sound like Jesus to me either. And then one commentator tried to say, I know, but he called her a little dog. Now, I have a miniature poodle who's really cute, but I'm not going to call anybody Lily uh, because she's still a dog. (laughs) So we have another possibility here that leads us not only into the world of Jesus, but also into this promise in the Hebrew Scriptures for all of us, and that is, I believe that Jesus was using something familiar to them but lost to us now. I believe Jesus was using an aphorism. An aphorism. Um, An aphorism. An aphorism is a pithy saying, uh, usually in one sentence, or a little proverb that just sort of sticks sticks in your mind. Here's an aphorism. A penny saved is a penny earned. Or, don't look back. Someone might be gaining on you. Or, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's an aphorism. And and those of us living in Alabama, we even have an example of something that could have been an aphorism at a time that's also lost to archaeology, which I'm beginning to think is what's going on here in Matthew chapter 15. Okay, there's a sign on the way to Montgomery from Birmingham off I-65 that's probably nationally known. I'll show it, the picture of you. Don't, let's say, go to church or the devil will get you. That's the picture. You've all seen it. I can only imagine poor snowbirds on their way to the beach, you know, driving through Alabama, and they see that sign and they think, oh, my goodness, we are not stopping till we get to Florida. And if you didn't know the story, I, I couldn't blame them. I've heard countless Episcopal preachers just aching over the sign at the presence of this country, fundamentalist religion that would send people to hell uh, if they don't go to church, uh, when in reality, I believe this is a, a jingle. It's an aphorism. I had an old man in Montgomery explain to me that this sign is an antique from an oil company at the turn of the last century. I think it was called the Red Devil Oil Company. Go to church or the devil will get you. It's something that's been lost to history. It's not a creepy church, uh, but rather it's just an antique. It's antique folk art, if you will. And I think the same thing is happening here. It's not fair to throw the children's food, the dogs. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs collect the crumbs under the table. Uh, These were something uh, that meant something to them, but not to us. And what happens here in this in this exchange, this witty exchange, is a woman with tenacious faith because her daughter is suffering and she's not stopping. And like the woman who crawled to touch Jesus' hymn, like Ruth who refused to stop 
uh, to stop uh, in Moab, but rather to go back and take care of Naomi in Bethlehem, or like the soldier who realized that all he had to do was to humble himself and to wash in the Jordan seven times like he was commanded to do, uh, like a centurion who didn't need to even see Jesus in his house, knowing that his servant would be healed, uh, these people would discover who God is for them and who God is in their community as their God for each other. In another part of Matthew's gospel, it's Matthew 13, Jesus goes home to Nazareth, and Matthew says he couldn't even do a whole lot there because they didn't have any faith. So our faith is not only part of our participation with God, but we can even deaden God's activity in the world. Because remember, it's two things. We got our God, and then we've got each other. We love God, and we're all one human family uh, through God's love for us, and we all take care of each other in that way. So what do we got here? Well, even in the story of the Gentiles, even in the story of the neighbors, we have a vision for a better humanity, a a faith that's available to all, a door that's open for everyone, an ordered life, an obedient life, a a way of, of being a better human being, and anyone can do it. And remember the promise in Genesis chapter 12, if we only work the plan, all the nations the word Gentiles means nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by us. I've got a little postscript to the story. I showed you the pictures of Hippos, right? And I showed you the pictures of the soldiers' quarters. And I told you that people wanted Jesus gone from that side of the lake. And I told you that that Jesus said, go back and tell your neighbors and your friends what God has done for you. And, and, And he went back up to Hippos and he told his neighbors and his friends. In Mark chapter 5, he's healed of the demons, and Jesus goes off and does other things. But remember, they wanted Jesus gone because this is the Gentile side of the lake, and nobody wants Jesus there. He's a rock star on this side of the lake. But just three chapters later, Jesus returns to this side of the lake here, this Gentile side of the lake, this place where nobody wanted him before. And in just three chapters, he has to feed 4,000 people. We all know the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which happened near Capernaum. But he feeds 4,000 Gentiles on the side of the lake, which means that that, that, that soldier, that Gentile, that, that blessed human being is not only the first missionary, but the greatest salesman the Bible never talks about. What can happen? What can happen when we work the plan and the nations of the earth are blessed by us? So that's Gentiles in the Bible, friends. And it leaves us with a couple of questions. Friends, where have you seen great faith? How's your faith doing these days? Well, Thanks for joining me this morning. Join us next week for our podcast on the temple. I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks.